Section 4 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Edmund Burke, Part 1. A.D. 1729 to 1797. Political Morality. It would be difficult to select an example of a more lofty and irreproachable character among the great statesmen of England than Edmund Burke. He is not a puzzle like Oliver Cromwell, although there are inconsistencies in the opinions he advanced from time to time. He takes very much the same place in the parliamentary history of his country as Cicero took in the Roman Senate. Like that greatest of Roman orators and statesmen, Burke was upright, conscientious, conservative, religious and profound like him he lifted up his earnest voice against corruption in the government against great state criminals against demagogues against rash innovations whatever diverse opinions may exist as to his political philosophy there is only one opinion as to his character which commands universal respect although he was the most conservative of statesmen clinging to the constitution and to consecrated traditions and associations both in church and state still his name is associated with the most important and salutary reforms which england made for half a century he seems to have been sent to instruct and guide legislators in a venal and corrupt age to my mind burke looms up after the lapse of a century as a prodigy of thought and knowledge devoted to the good of his country an unselfish and disinterested patriot as wise and sagacious as he was honest a sage whose moral wisdom shines brighter and brighter since it was based on the immutable principles of justice and morality one can extract more profound and striking epigrams from his speeches and writings than from any prose writer that england has produced if we accept francis bacon and these writings and speeches are still valued as among the most precious legacies of former generations they form a thesaurus of political wisdom which statesmen can never exhaust Burke has left an example which all statesmen will do well to follow. He was not a popular favorite like Fox and Pitt. He was not born to greatness like North and Newcastle. He was not liked by the king or the nobility. He was generally in the ranks of the opposition. He was a new man like Cicero in an aristocratic age. Yet he conquered by his genius the proudest prejudices. He fought his way upward inch by inch. He was the founder of a new national policy, although it was bitterly opposed, and he died universally venerated for his integrity, wisdom, and foresight. He was the most remarkable man, on the whole, who has taken part in public affairs, from the Revolution to our times. Of course, the life and principles of so great a man are a study. If history has any interest or value, it is to show the influence of such a man on his own age and the ages which have succeeded, to point out his contribution to civilization. Edmund Burke was born, 1730, of respectable parents in Ireland. He was educated at Trinity College, Dublin, where he made a fair proficiency, but did not give the promise of those rare powers which he afterwards exhibited. He was no prodigy like Cicero, Pitt, and Macaulay. He early saw that his native country presented no adequate field for him, and turned his steps to London at the age of twenty, where he entered as a student of law in the Inner Temple, since the bar was then what it was at Rome, what it still is in modern capitals, the usual resort of ambitious young men. But Burke did not like the law as a profession, and early dropped the study of it, not because he failed in industry, for he was the most plodding of students, 
not because he was deficient in the gift of speech for he was a born orator not because his mind repelled severe logical deductions for he was the most philosophical of the great orators of his day not because the law was not a noble field for the exercise of the highest faculties of the mind but probably because he was won by the superior fascinations of literature and philosophy bacon could unite the study of divine philosophy with professional labors as a lawyer also with the duties of a legislator but the instances are rare where men have united three distinct spheres and gained equal distinction in all cicero did and bacon and lord brougham but not erskine nor pitt nor canning even two spheres are as much as most distinguished men have filled the law with politics like thurlow and webster or politics with literature like gladstone and disraeli dr johnson garrick and reynolds the early friends of burke filled only one sphere the early literary life of burke was signalized by his essay on the sublime and beautiful original in its design and execution a model of philosophical criticism extorting the highest praises from dugald stuart and the abbe Raynal, and attracting so much attention that it speedily became a textbook in the universities fortunately he was able to pursue literature with the aid of a small patrimony about three hundred pounds a year without being doomed to the hard privations of johnson or the humiliating shifts of goldsmith he lived independently of patronage from the great the bitterest trial of the literati of the eighteenth century which drove cowper mad and sent rousseau to attics and solitudes so that in his humble but pleasant home with his young wife with whom he lived amicably he could see his friends the great men of the age and bestow an unostentatious charity and maintain his literary rank and social respectability i have sometimes wondered why burke did not pursue this quiet and beautiful life free from the turmoils of public contest with leisure and friends and nature and truth and prepared treatises which would have been immortal for he was equal to anything he attempted but such was not to be he was needed in the house of commons then composed chiefly of fox-hunting squires and younger sons of nobles a body as ignorant as it was aristocratic the representatives not of the people but of the landed proprietors intent on aggrandizing their families at the expense of the nation and of fortunate merchants manufacturers and capitalists in love with monopolies such an assembly needed at that day a schoolmaster a teacher in the principles of political economy and political wisdom a leader in reforming disgraceful abuses a lecturer on public duties and public wrongs a patriot who had other views than spoils and place a man who saw the right and was determined to uphold it whatever the number or power of his opponents so edmund burke was sent among them ambitious doubtless stern intellectually proud incorruptible independent not disdainful of honors and influence but eager to render public services it has been the great ambition of englishmen since the revolution to enter parliament not merely for political influence but also for social position only rich men or members of great families have found it easy to do so to such men a pecuniary compensation is a small affair hence members of parliament have willingly served without pay which custom has kept poor men of ability from aspiring to the position it was not easy even for such a man as burke to gain admission into this aristocratic assembly he did not belong to a great family he was only a man of genius learning and character the squirearchy of that age cared no more for literary fame than the roman aristocracy did for a poet or an actor so burke ambitious and able as he was must bide his time
his first stop in a political career was as private secretary to gerard hamilton who was famous for having made but one speech and who was chief secretary to the lord lieutenant of ireland the earl of halifax burke soon resigned his situation in disgust since he was not willing to be a mere political tool but his singular abilities had attracted the attention of the prime minister lord rockingham who made him his private secretary and secured his entrance into parliament lord verney for a seat in the privy council was induced to give him a rotten borough burke entered the house of commons in seventeen sixty five at thirty-five years of age he began his public life when the nation was ruled by the great whig families whose ancestors had fought the battles of reform in the times of charles and james this party had held power for seventy years had forgotten the principles of the revolution and had become venal and selfish dividing among its chiefs the spoils of office it had become as absolute and unscrupulous as the old kings whom it had once dethroned it was an oligarchy of a few powerful whig noblemen whose rule was supreme in england burke joined this party but afterwards deserted it or rather broke it up when he perceived its arbitrary character and its disregard of the fundamental principles of the constitution he was able to do this after its unsuccessful attempt to coerce the american colonies american difficulties were the great issue of that day the majority of the parliament both lords and commons sustained by king george the third one of the most narrow-minded obstinate and stupid princes who ever reigned in england who believed in an absolute jurisdiction over the colonies as an integral part of the empire and was bent not only in enforcing this jurisdiction but also resorted to the most offensive and impolitic measures to accomplish it this omnipotent parliament fancying it had a right to tax america without her consent without a representation even was resolved to carry out the abstract rights of a supreme governing power both in order to assert its prerogative and to please certain classes in england who wished relief from the burden of taxation and because parliament had this power it would use it against the dictates of expediency and the instincts of common sense yea in defiance of the great elemental truth in government that even thrones rest on the affections of the people blinded and infatuated with notions of prerogative it would not even learn lessons from that conquered country which for five hundred years it had vainly attempted to coerce and which it could finally govern only by a recognition of its rights now the great career of burke began by opposing the leading opinions of his day in reference to the coercion of the american colonies he discarded all theories and abstract rights he would not even discuss the subject whether parliament had a right to tax the colonies he took the side of expediency and common sense it was enough for him that it was foolish and irritating to attempt to exercise abstract powers which could not be carried out he foresaw and he predicted the consequences of attempting to coerce such a people as the americans with the forces which england could command he pointed out the infatuation of the ministers of the crown then led by lord north his speech against the boston port bill was one of the most brilliant specimens of oratory ever displayed in the house of commons he did not encourage the colonies in rebellion but pointed out the course they would surely pursue if the irritating measures of the government were not withdrawn he advocated conciliation the withdrawal of theoretic rights the repeal of obnoxious taxes the removal of restrictions on american industry the withdrawal of monopolies and of ungenerous distinctions he would bind the two countries together by a cord of love when some member remarked that it was horrible for children to rebel against their parents burke replied it is true the americans are our children but when children ask for bread shall we give them a stone 
For ten years he labored with successive administrations to procure reconciliation. He spoke nearly every day. He appealed to reason, to justice, to common sense. But every speech he made was a battle with ignorance and prejudice. If you must employ your strength, he said indignantly, employ it to uphold some honorable right. I do not enter upon metaphysical distinctions. I hate the very name of them. Nobody can be argued into slavery. If you cannot reconcile your sovereignty with their freedom, the colonists will cast your sovereignty in your face. It is not enough that a statesman means well. Duty demands that what is right should not only be made known, but be made prevalent. That what is evil should not only be detected, but be defeated. Do not dream that your registers, your bonds, your affidavits, your instructions are the things which hold together the great texture of the mysterious whole. These dead instruments do not make a government. It is the spirit that pervades and vivifies an empire which infuses that obedience without which your army would be a base rabble and your navy nothing but rotten timber. Such is a fair specimen of his eloquence, earnest, practical, to the point, yet appealing to exalted sentiments and pervaded with moral wisdom the result of learning as well as the dictate of a generous and enlightened policy. When reason failed, he resorted to sarcasm and mockery. Because, said he, we have a right to tax America, we must do it. Risk everything, forfeit everything, take into consideration nothing but our right. Oh, infatuated ministers, like a silly man, full of his prerogative over the beasts of the field, who says, there is wool on the back of a wolf, and therefore he must be sheared. What? Shear a wolf? Yes. But have you considered the trouble? Oh, I have considered nothing but my right. A wolf is an animal that has wool. All animals that have wool are to be sheared, and therefore I will shear the wolf. But I need not enlarge on his noble efforts to prevent a war with the colonies. They were all in vain. You cannot reason with infatuation. Quem Deus vult perder, prius dementat. The logic of events at last showed the wisdom of Burke and the folly of the king and his ministers, and of the nation at large. The disasters and the humiliation which attended the American war compelled the ministry to resign, and the Marquis of Rockingham became prime minister in 1782, and Burke, the acknowledged leader of his party, became paymaster of the forces, an office at one time worth £25,000 a year, before the reform which Burke had instigated. But this great statesman was not admitted to the cabinet. George the Third did not like him, and his connections were not sufficiently powerful to overcome the royal objection. In our times he would have been rewarded with a seat on the treasury bench. With less talents than he had, the commoners of our day become prime ministers. But Burke did not long enjoy even the office of paymaster. On the death of Lord Rockingham, a few months after he had formed the ministry, Burke retired from the only office he ever held and he retired to Beaconsfield, an estate which he had purchased with the assistance of his friend Rockingham, where he lived when parliamentary duties permitted, in that state of blended elegance, leisure, and study which is to be found in the greatest perfection in England alone. The political power of Burke culminated at the close of the war with America, but not his political influence, and there is a great difference between power and influence. Nor do we read that Burke, after this, headed the opposition. That position was shared by Charles James Fox, who ultimately supplanted his master as the leader of his party, not because Burke declined in wisdom or energy, but because Fox had more skill as a debater, more popular sympathies, and more influential friends. Burke, like Gladstone, was too stern, too irritable, too imperious, 
too intellectually proud, perhaps too unyielding, to control such an ignorant, prejudiced, and aristocratic body as the House of Commons, jealous of his ascendancy and writhing under his rebukes. It must have been galling to the great philosopher to yield to the palm of lesser men, but such has ever been the destiny of genius, except in crises of public danger. Of all things that politicians hate is the domination of a man who will not stoop to flatter, who cannot be bribed, and who will be certain to expose vices and wrongs. The world will not bear rebukes. The fate of prophets is to be stoned. A stern moral greatness is repulsive to the weak and wicked. Parties reward mediocre men whom they can use or bend, and the greatest benefactors lose their popularity when they oppose the enthusiasm of new ideas or become austere in their instructions. Thus the greatest statesman that this country has produced since Alexander Hamilton lost his prestige when his conciliating policy became offensive to a rising party whose watchword was the higher law, although by his various conflicts with southern leaders and his loyalty to the Constitution he educated the people to sustain the very war which he foresaw and dreaded. And had that accomplished senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, who succeeded to Webster's seat, and who in his personal appearance and advocacy for reform strikingly resembled Burke, had he remained uninjured to our day, with increasing intellectual powers and profounder moral wisdom, I doubt whether even he would have had much influence with our present legislators, for he had all the intellectual defects of both Burke and Webster, and never was so popular as either of them at one period of their career, while he certainly was inferior to both in native force, experience, and attainments. The chief labors of Burke for the first ten years of his parliamentary life had been mainly in connection with American affairs, and which the result proved he comprehended better than any man in England. Those of the next ten years were directed principally to Indian difficulties, in which he showed the same minuteness of knowledge, the same grasp of intellect, the same moral wisdom, the same good sense, and the same regard for justice that he had shown concerning the colonies. But in discussing Indian affairs his eloquence takes a loftier flight. He is less conciliating, more in earnest, more concerned with the principles of immutable obligations. He abhors the cruelties and tyranny inflicted on India by Clive and Hastings. He could see no good from an aggrandizement purchased by injustice and wrong. If it was criminal for an individual to cheat and steal, it was equally atrocious for a nation to plunder and oppress another nation, infidel or pagan, white or black. A righteous anger burned in the breast of Burke as he reflected on the wrongs and miseries of the natives of India. Why should that ancient country be ruled for no other purpose than to enrich the younger sons of a grasping aristocracy and the servants of an insatiable and unscrupulous company whose monopoly of spoils was the scandal of the age? If ever a reform was imperative in the government of a colony, it was surely in India, where the government was irresponsible. The English courts of justice there were more terrible to the natives than the very wrongs they pretended to redress. The customs and laws and moral ideas of the conquered country were spurned and ignored by the greedy scions of gentility, who were sent to rule a population ten times larger than that between the Humber and the Thames. So Burke, after the most careful study of the condition of India, lifted up his voice against the inequities which were winked at by Parliament. But his fierce protest arrayed against him all the parties that endorsed these wrongs, or who were benefited by them. I need not dwell on his protracted labors for ten years in behalf of right, without the sympathies of those who had formerly supported him. 
no speeches were ever made in the english house of commons which equaled in eloquence and power those he made on the nabob of arcot's debts and the impeachment of warren hastings in these famous philippics he fearlessly exposed the peculations the misrule the oppression and the inhuman heartlessness of the company's servants speeches which extorted admiration while they humiliated and chastised i need not describe the nine years prosecution of a great criminal and the escape of hastings more guilty and more fortunate than vares from the punishment he merited through legal technicalities the apathy of men in power the private influence of the throne and the sympathies which fashion excited in his behalf and more than all because of the undoubted service he had rendered to his country if it was a service to extend her rule by questionable means to the farthermost limits of the globe i need not speak of the obloquy which burke incurred from the press which teemed with pamphlets and books and articles to undermine his great authority all in the interest of venal and powerful monopolists nor did he escape the wrath of the electors of bristol a narrow-minded town of india traders and negro dealers who withdrew from him their support he had been solicited in the midst of his former eclat to represent this town rather than the rotten borough of wendover and he proudly accepted the honor and was the idol of his constituents until he presumed to disregard their instructions in matters which he considered they were incompetent to judge his famous letter to the electors in which he refutes and ridicules their claim to instruct him as the shoemakers of lynn wished to instruct daniel webster is a model of irony as well as a dignified rebuke of all ignorant constituencies and a lofty exposition of the duties of a statesman rather than of a politician he had also incurred the displeasure of the bristol electors by his manly defense of the rights of the irish catholics who since the conquest of william the third had been subjected to the most unjust and annoying treatment that ever disgraced a protestant government the injustices under which ireland groaned were nearly as repulsive as the cruelties inflicted upon the protestants of france during the reign of louis the fourteenth on the suppression of the rebellion under tyrconnel says morley nearly the whole of the land was confiscated the peasants were made beggars and outlaws the penal laws against catholics were enforced and the peasants were prostrate in despair even in seventeen sixty five the native irish were regarded by their protestant oppressors with exactly that combination of intense contempt and loathing rage and terror which his american counterpart would have divided between the indian and the negro not the least of the labors of burke was to bring to the attention of the nation the wrongs inflicted on the irish and the impossibility of ruling a people who had such just grounds for discontent his letter upon the propriety of admitting catholics to the elective franchise is one of the wisest of all his productions so enlightened is its idea of toleration so sagacious is its comprehension of political exigencies he did not live to see his ideas carried out but he was among the first to prepare the way for catholic emancipation in later times but a greater subject than colonial rights or indian wrongs or persecution of the irish catholics agitated the mind of burke to which he devoted the energies of his declining years and this was the agitation growing out of the french revolution when that roaring conflagration of anarchies broke out he was in the full maturity of his power and his fame a wise old statesman versed in the lessons of human experience who detested sophistries and abstract theories and violent reforms a man who while he loved liberty more than any political leader of his day loathed the crimes committed in its name and who was skeptical of any reforms which could not be carried on without a wanton destruction of the foundations of society itself 
he was also a christian who planted himself on the certitudes of religious faith and was shocked by the flippant and shallow infidelity which passed current for progress and improvement next to the infidel spirit which would make christianity and a corrupted church identical as seen in the mockeries of voltaire and would destroy both under the guise of hatred of superstition he despised those sentimentalities with which rousseau and his admirers would veil their disgusting immoralities to him hypocrisy and infidelity under whatever name they were baptized by the new apostles of human rights were mischievous and revolting and as an experienced statesman he held in contempt the inexperience of the revolutionary leaders and the unscrupulous means they pursued to accomplish even desirable ends End of section 4